0: Armstrong. We're wandering through an ancient Egyptian village. There's something on the air. It's a sense, both sweet and savory, full of sunlight and grain. Is someone baking bread? There's steam floating out a window, so you peek in. Ah, now you see. Someone standing behind their clay pot, brewing beer. Who is this brewer you've got in your mind's eye? What does the typical brewer look like? I recently went to a beer festival in my hometown of Melbourne, Australia, and asked a few friends. So Anna, when you think of your typical brewer, what does that person look like? What comes to mind?
1: (laughs) Beardy. Uh, Well, male. Your typical brewer? Definitely Male. What about you, Paul? What do you think of? Yeah, I think of a uh, a thick glass-framed bearded hipster with, uh, yeah. Does he
0: have man parts?
1: Is he a he? Yeah, well, obviously with a beard, yes. He's a he,
0: yes. Likely he's got copious facial hair and is wearing time-travel-inappropriate flannel. But you're going to have to shift that mental image, because the brewer we're looking at is a woman. In fact, for most of history, women were primarily the ones who brewed beer. For millennia, brewing was overwhelmingly a woman's game. You can't research beer's history without stumbling across female brewers all along the timeline. So why, when we conjure up an image of a brewer, is it a dude we always picture? How did beer, both the brewing and the drinking, become seen as such a man's drink? To find out, we'll explore how beer was made in the ancient world, then hop forward through time, following a particular story through history the relationship between women and beer. Their connection to one of the world's oldest beverages will probably surprise you, and I hope it may even change your relationship with that IPA currently at the back of your fridge. Grab your beer mug, a pointy witch's hat, and get ready to party. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to my patrons, my Pirate Queens, Emily, Get Grim Podcast, Jessica B., and Wendy, and my lady presidents, Alexis, Amy, Brendan, Ashley, Audrey, Avery, Jordan, Caroline, Cassie, Courtney, Claire, Debbie, Edie, Elizabeth, Ellie, Eve, Jackie, Jessica S., Caitlin, Karen. Casey, Kat, Catherine, Lauren, Louisa, Lindsay, Mary, Meg, Nancy, Pamela, Paul, Sasha, and Townsend. If you dig the Explorers, becoming a patron for as little as $1 a month really helps keep the show going. Plus, it gives you access to exclusive bonus episodes, sneak peeks, and more. To check it out, go to my website and click on Become a Patron. Beer has been around since we humans first put down roots and started farming, but we developed a taste for fermented things long before that. Our primate ancestors were tempted down out of the trees for fermented fruit. It was simple to find, full of easy calories, and made us feel all warm and tingly. I can just see our ancient thought process. Hanging out in trees is fun, but rotting fruit, you say? Hmm, yes. Time to party. Around 10 million years ago, our last common ancestor of African apes saw a mutation in their ADH4 gene, which created an enzyme that let them digest ethanol some 40 times faster than before. This so-called drunken monkey hypothesis suggests that our bodies evolved to deal with alcohol, perhaps because it gave us some kind of survival advantage. This we know for sure— We've been enjoying alcoholic fruit juice for pretty much as long as we've been around. Grain cultivation took off in Europe during the Neolithic period, starting around 8,000 BCE. Grains are one of only three ingredients needed to make beer, along with water and yeast. So where there's grain, brewing can't have been far behind. Until recently, we didn't have any archaeological evidence of barley beer until 3500 BCE at a place in modern-day Iran called Godin Tip. But in 2018, researchers at Reqifet Cave in what is now Israel found evidence of a brewery dating back 13,000 years. They analyzed three stone mortars there, all of which held starch residue and microscopic plant particles that make researchers fairly certain they were once used to brew beer. In this cave, the semi-nomadic Natufian people not only buried their dead on beds of flowers a condition I'll be writing into my will for sure, but also brewed beer to send with them into the afterlife. Which gives weight to an idea that's been floating around for quite a while. That it was our thirst for beer, perhaps just as much as our taste for bread, that pushed us to stop all our nomadic wandering and settle down to agricultural living. We were drinking beer long before we started writing down recipes, or anything else for that matter. A steady supply of grain-dense, nutrient-rich beer may very well have helped foster written languages and art. It spawned exploration and informed religious ritual. You could say that beer helped jumpstart some of the world's first great civilizations. More and more evidence of ancient brewing is cropping up all around the world. It was developed independently in China, the Middle East, and South America, imbibed, we think, in religious ritual and around the casual dinner table. When people moved, they took their brewing practices with them. We're not talking about a luxury item here either. Everyone drank it, young and old, male and female, priest, royal, and slave. But who actually invented it? We have no idea, but it probably happened by accident. Maybe someone was making some bread and left a bunch of wet grains out on the sill overnight. That's when wild yeast, those tiny single-cell organisms always floating on the air all around us, got in and started performing a special kind of magic, transforming sugar into alcohol. Imagine being the adventurous farmer who looked into a bowl of wet grains that smelled like barnyard on one of its less clean days and said, Hmm, I mean, no sense wasting it. Delicious? Here's a quick rundown of the brewing process, which at its heart has barely changed in all this time. Ready?
1: Step 1. Mashing.
0: To make beer, you need just four ingredients. Grains, water, yeast, and hops. Although, if you're an ancient brewer, hops are optional. Gather your grains, then soak them in a hot water bath. That'll wake up the enzymes that change starches and proteins into fermentable sugars. The result is a sugary water called wort. Yup, that's W O R T. It sounds a lot better in an Australian accent.
1: Wort. Step two, laudering.
0: You'll separate the wort from the grains in a big pot, sometimes called a lauderton. From there, you're going to sparge it. And again, in Australian, wort. No. <laughs> Spodge. Much better. This is just a fancy term for rinsing the grains to get as much sugar out of them as possible.
1: Step 3. The boil.
0: Now we're going to boil our wort, stirring it like the witches we are. The ancients would have added whatever bittering plants they had on hand at this stage, but we'll probably add hops. For bitterness, add some at the beginning of the boil. For flavor and aroma, near the ends. Okay, sweet. Now...
1: Step 4. The Whirlpool
0: Our wort will spend some time in a jacuzzi. Just kidding. Our resident brewer, Mr. Explores, just gives the wort a little stir, creating a handmade whirlpool, which separates out any hop fragments and protein strains.
1: Step 5. Chilling
0: We'll cool the wort down as fast as we can. When the temperature is low enough, we'll add in our yeast.
1: Step 6. Fermentation
0: Pour some yeast into the brew, where it will proceed to throw a big ol' rager. Party time! It eats away at the sugar in the ward, making many happy blurping noises, and producing alcohol in the process. Once the yeast has eaten all the sugar and is nursing a wicked hangover, we'll filter our beer, or not, up to you. Put it aside to condition a while, or pop it into a keg or a bottle, where it'll most likely be carbonated.
1: Step 7. Enjoy.
0: To find out more about brewing, I went to a brewery in Melbourne, Australia, to talk to a modern-day lady brewer.
1: My name is Flora Gizani. I work as a brewer for Colonial Brewing.
0: I asked Flora what she thought ancient beer would taste like. Please forgive the audio quality. Think of the seagulls and beeping trucks as a bit of charming ambiance.
1: Yeah, I guess beer that were spontaneously fermented must have been a bit, probably a bit sour. I also imagine they would be flat because at that time they probably were not able to catch the CO2 and keep it inside the beer. Beer yeah, so completely different. We, we probably would barely not call it beer. Why was beer so popular?
0: Because before we understood a whole lot about sanitation and bacteria, we did understand that local water drunk straight up often made us sick. But beer didn't. Because beer requires you to boil your water, killing any nasty bacteria. Plus, ethanol is toxic to other microbes, which makes it antimicrobial. While olden-day brewers wouldn't have understood the mechanics, they knew that beer was safer for regular consumption, and in ancient times it was drunk unfiltered, thick, and porridge-like, full of things that are good for you, easy calories, and B vitamins like folic acid, niacin, thiamine, and riboflavin. When you think about how bad the ancient diet was for many, and how scanty, beer was both crucial and convenient. They were drinking the equivalent of ancient bread. The ancient Egyptians often get credit for inventing beer, but they didn't really. What they did was brew the first stuff we time travelers would recognize as such. And it was considered quite healthy, a great remedy for many of the things that might ail you. The Ebers papyrus says that half an onion and the froth of a beer are "...a delightful remedy against death." Egyptian medical papyri catalog some 17 different kinds. Dark beer, friends beer, heavenly beer, sweet beer. They sometimes sweetened it with dates or honey, or added some red dye if it was for a festival day. One thing's for certain, none of them were carbonated, and none had any bittering hops." They drank it out of bowls or goblets, and it was so thick with grainy, malty goodness that you had to drink it through a straw. The ancient Sumerians invented the straw for this very special purpose. Most of your everyday stuff was low alcohol, sessionable enough to be enjoyed by all. But for real time traveler, don't break out your beer bong. This stuff is more like porridge than anything you've ever enjoyed in a beer garden. Mmm, lumpy. Copious chugging? Not advised. It's considered so valuable that the Egyptians also use beer as currency. The guys who built the pyramids were often paid in beer. And if the overseers missed a payday, they might just have a revolt on their hands. It can also be sacred. The Egyptians offer it up to their gods. And it was a popular item to take with you into the afterlife. A staple in any Egyptian tomb. King Tut was buried with jugs of the stuff. There were even royal beer brewers whose status was lofty enough that some of them had fancy tombs of their own. Take Kanso Imheb, the head brewer for the court of Amenhotep III, all around Lady Slayer and Nefertiti's father in law. His tomb is covered in images of beer production, which he apparently brewed in honor of not a god but a goddess, Moot. One of fancy lady pharaoh Cleopatra's biggest mistakes during her reign was imposing a tax on beer, perhaps the first in history, which caused considerable public outrage. Which tells us a little something about how much the public must have been drinking. She claimed her tax was to curb public drunkenness, but it was probably to fund her war with Rome. More on that later. Beer was beloved so much that it wasn't just made at home, but on an industrial scale. one at Hierakonpolis had the capacity to make some 1,200 liters of beer a week. By contrast, the Romans and Greeks were big fans of wine and tended to consider beer a barbarian drink. As Martin Luther will say much, much later, Beer is made by men, wine by God. Ancient Greek writer Xenophon gives us this review of a Mesopotamian beer he tried. The beverage without admixture of water was very strong and of a delicious flavor to certain palates, but the taste must be acquired. Kind of a backhanded compliment there, Xenophon. But then, as Rome expanded its borders, they encountered people who lived on beer. And since Roman soldiers out on campaign often found themselves without a steady wine supply, they learned to embrace it. They even started brewing it themselves, calling it cerevisiae, a word that probably has Celtic roots. For the ancient Celts and Gauls, beer was almost sacred. At a 2,550-year-old Celtic site in Germany, archaeologists have found evidence that they soaked barley in specially dug ditches until it sprouted, then dried them out by lighting fires at the ends of the ditches to roast the grains, giving them a dark and smoky taste. They then probably added spices like mugwort or henbane, which is supposed to make the beer more intoxicating. If the Celts liked one thing, it was a big, drunken party. Snobby Roman Emperor Julian described it as smelling
1: Like a billy goat.
0: Mind your manners, Julian. Some beers are supposed to smell like that. Here's the thing. Back in Egypt, beer eventually became commercialized. You needed a license to do it, which probably discouraged women from becoming professional brewers. But go to any farmhouse in ancient Egypt and you're likely to find a lady brewing at home. Because in all of these ancient places, brewing was primarily done at home, and that meant it was overwhelmingly a woman's game. In our early beginnings, with the men out hunting down things with tusks and many teeth, women were left behind to gather herbs and get to brewing. In the ancient world, there were no local bottle shops to stop in at, and if you were the average lady, no courtly brewer was making it for you. Brewing was considered a domestic duty, something akin to baking bread and preparing the meals. And that meant it was primarily a woman's business. There is a site in modern-day Syria called Tal Bazi. Each house in this ancient town, perched along the Euphrates River, contains a 50 gallon clay jar sunk into the floor, where archaeologists found traces of barley. The women of these houses used their cauldrons to operate their own tiny breweries at home. They fermented whatever fruit and wild grains they happened to have on hand, which changed depending on locale agave, bananas, birch tree sap, corn, cassava, horse milk. Yummy. Sometimes, if they had any extra, they'd even sell it to bring in some extra income. Remember how the ancient Egyptian brewer dedicated his brew to the goddess Mut? It's fairly telling that female goddesses are all up in the brewing business. The ancient Sumerian god of beer is a goddess named Ninkasi. She even had her own hymn, which is also the world's oldest surviving beer recipe. The deity of drinking is also a woman named Siduri. The Epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest written story on record, includes an alewife in its pages. And in it, the hero, Enkidu, takes counsel from a lady of the evening named Shamhat, who also teaches him to drink beer. Egyptians have a beer goddess too, Tenenet, who watches over brewers and the quality of their product. But many of their goddesses are tied to beer. Take Sekhmet, that lion-headed goddess who goes around eating people until the god Ra spills some red-dyed beer out on the floor, which she slurps on up and then passes out, transforming into the gentle goddess Hathor. There's a festival that commemorates this event, called the Tech Festival, a.k.a. the Festival of Drunkenness. Egyptologist Carolyn Graves-Brown suggests that artwork depicting the festival ties drinking to traveling through the marshes, which may well be a euphemism for horizontal love time. While an inscription at one of Hathor's temples from 2200 BCE says that
1: the mouth of a perfectly contented man is filled with beer,
0: it's mostly women who brewed and served it. The Mesopotamian Code of Hammurabi, a comprehensive code of law dating to around 1754 BCE, is full of rules about many things, including ones about beer. And every one about taverns is gendered. Every tavern owner is listed as she. Women often brewed and baked together, sending their grains on different journeys, destined to end up on a plate or in a glass. In ancient Babylonia, brewing equipment was often given as part of a girl's dowry. Thus, beer and brewing was a regular feature in many an ancient lady's life. So, what changed? In Europe, with the fall of the Roman Empire and the rise of Catholicism in the Middle Ages, we see beer move from women's kitchens to behind the cloister walls of abbeys, where it was brewed and tinkered with mostly by men. By the 11th century, they turned it into a profession, brewing beer for themselves but also selling it to passers-by. But before that, in beer-loving places like Ireland, Scotland, and the lands we now call Germany, beer was brewed almost entirely at home by women, both for their family's consumption and as an important way to make some extra income. In what we now call Finland, women made a beer called sati with hops, juniper twigs, barley, and rye, all smoked in a sauna. A very attractive Baltic and Slavic goddess named Rogatine protected beer, and we think the Vikings only let women brew theirs. In the mid-1300s in England, about a third of village women and half of all households brewed to make a little money. As Shakespeare put it, She brews good ale, and thereof comes the proverb, Blessing of your heart, you brew good ale. Many alewives brewed outside, stirring their cauldrons all afternoon long, throwing in all sorts of mysterious herbs and spices. When the beer was ready, they'd tie barley stalks to the end of a stick and hang it, all broom-like, over their door. They wore a pointy felt hat, both because it was fashionable and because it helped people see them over the crowd on market day. They kept cats around too, as where there are sacks of grain, there are always mice. And unlike the ancient Egyptians, they didn't think their poop had any medicinal properties, but thank you. Wait, is this a brewer we're talking about? Or a witch? Hmm, Hard to say. Which is why some think alewives are partially responsible for giving us the traditional image of a witch we're all so fond of today. For alewives, brewing was not a get-rich-quick scheme. It was highly regulated. Women were frequently fined, and probably because it was a woman's market, the pay wasn't great. And there was a dark side to the whole business. Probably because they wanted to control the sale of beer themselves, medieval men loved to rain shade all over alewives. They called them liars and cheats, frequently accusing them of overcharging for inferior brew but it gets worse. They were accused of tainting their beer, putting all sorts of grossness in it. These women weren't just liars, but prostitutes and witches. If there's one thing you don't want to be accused of during this, or perhaps any time, it's a witch. It's around this time we start to see female brewers portrayed as both jokes and a threat to the community's moral fiber a temptress who was also a beer seller featured back in Gilgamesh's pages, and here we are again in the 14th century with monk John Lyngate's The Ballad of an Ale Seller," in which he calls an alewife someone.
1: Who uses her charms to induce men to drink.
0: In illustrations from the period, witches are shown with thick necks and mole-covered faces, dirty and not to be trusted, making them easier both to shut out and control. Brewing beer, and openly selling it, became something of a dangerous business. Let's hop on our brooms and fly away from that unfortunate turn of events just for a minute, and talk about some of the ingredients we're brewing with. Before hops made their way into beer, there was Groot, a potent mix of herbs and spices that varied depending on where you lived. Alewives used all sorts of things, both fresh and dried. Marsh rosemary, yarrow, juniper, heather. It was considered medicinal and probably added some aroma and bitterness. Watch out, though, because some of these little additives might make you hallucinate, put you in an amorous mood, or give you extremely weird dreams. The hop plant is a sticky vine called Humulus lupulus, a close cousin of marijuana, but without the stuff that makes you see fairies. It produces cone-shaped flowers which, fun fact, only come from the female plant. They can be added into beer fresh or dried and made into pellets. One of the first people to describe the potential medical benefits of hops, particularly when thrown into some beer, was a badass 12th century abbess in Germany named Hildegard von Bingen. Besides being a composer, philosopher, and polymath, she was also a keen student of medicine. In her landmark medical book, she wrote about hops' preservative qualities, but also about how they increase melancholy, which is saying something, given that most monks were prescribing them to pick up people's spirits. We now know that hops are a sedative, great for helping to relax our nervous systems. Way to be a legend, Hildy. Hops get into beer in the 16th century, primarily because it's handy in keeping it from going bad. Because beer can now be kept fresh for longer, it can be made in much bigger quantities and shipped further afield. And so it is that hops help bring about the alewife's
1: demise. Here's Flora again. I think once it became like industrialized, the production became industrialized, then then it became more of a man's job because it wasn't a cooking task anymore. And it involved like heavy lifting and manual handling and Operating machinery.
0: And when it stopped being a cooking task and showed promise as a major moneymaker, men were quick to step in and take over. Brewing suddenly required big operations and expensive equipment. It just got too expensive for the average small time female brewster to afford, and they didn't have the support to do it. <laughs> Men started establishing brewer's guilds, which were meant to protect brewers' interests. But these, and the laws they helped get into writing, tended to shut women out of the game. In Bruges in 1447, a brewing association met to protect themselves from innkeeper, woman, and provost. One 1540 law in the city of Chester in England banned women aged 14 to 40, so anyone with the potential of bearing children, from practicing as alewives. I mean, bear children and hold down a job? No woman could handle it. Later, the Industrial Revolution also plays a part in putting the final nail in the alewife's coffin. As brewing went commercial, it became harder and harder for women who wanted to break in. But what about outside of Europe? Over in what we now call the Americas, indigenous tribes were making a corn-based beer called chicha from way back. Again, mostly brewed by women. They'd chew starchy things like maize and yucca, then spit them out and let them ferment in a bowl. Mm. Apache women made a corn beer known as tulpi or tulapa that featured in girls' puberty rites. But then foreigners came on over and crashed the party. When the Pilgrims sailed over, they brought their fear of drinking straight water and their love of low alcohol small beer over with them to America. Legend has it that the Mayflower, which sailed over in 1620, stopped at Plymouth Rock, not because that was their final destination, but because the captain was worried that they were running out of beer and they wouldn't have enough for the sail home. When out at sea and in uncharted territory, beer was crucial to survival. So building breweries and recruiting brewers was top priority in colonies like Jamestown in my home state of Virginia. But in the early years of settlement, supplies were scarce, so they had to improvise with things like corn, pumpkin, spruce tips, birch sap, probably with some help from native peoples. But beer can be dangerous if you don't make it right. As one Jamestown colonist grumbled about a particularly sloppy brewer, I would you could hang that villain dupe, who by his stinking beer hath poisoned the colony. Good thing there are plenty of female brewers making small beer at home. Everyone drinks it. Kids. Pregnant women. It isn't hopped, so it can't travel far. Making brewing a local enterprise. Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, those founding fathers whose faces still grace America's dollar bills, both had their own alehouses, and their wives were very involved in the brewing process. In the early years of their marriage, Martha Jefferson brewed some 15-gallon batches of small beer every two weeks. She was quite well known for her wheat beer. Get it, Martha? Lady brewers, called brewsters, brewed at home and in local taverns, where they could offer travelers and locals alike a tasty pint and a place to talk about, say, breaking away from Mother England. But beer was already starting to go professional, and women were not encouraged to apply. In Philadelphia, a woman named Mary Liesel became the colony's first female commercial brewer in 1734 when she inherited her father's brewery. But still, women were losing their stake in the game, giving us what has remained a very male-dominated business. Of course, in many places, women have never stopped brewing at home. In some African countries, homebrew continues to be a staple, made from recipes passed down from mother to daughter. Take Um Umkumbothi, made in South Africa. This low-alcohol everyday beer for weddings, rituals, and meetings is usually made from maize and sorghum. Zulu tradition says that women should try all the homebrew first just to make sure it's safe before passing it on to their menfolk. Or, as I like to imagine it, to make sure they're getting the freshest taste. They often sell any surplus by the pail, providing a vital source of income. Then there's Mbege, made by women in Tanzania from fermented bananas, which they then sip daintily through a straw. In Nepal, women spend a whole month brewing Roxy, a pungent little drink made from rice. As Flora says, sometimes restriction is the mother of invention.
1: There are also a lot of countries that do like alcohol at home because alcohol consumption is forbidden, and they will just use like sugar and baker's yeast and make alcohol. basically. Fermenting any kind of sugar and turning it into alcohol, and that makes the whole spectrum of what result you can get is like very, very wide.
0: In all of these places, brewing continues to provide an important source of income for women, and women continue to be central to brewing. But when it comes to women in commercial, big time breweries, they're still vastly outnumbered by men. In a 2014 Stanford poll, only 4% of American brewmasters were women. In that same year, Auburn University said that 29% of American brewery workers were women, and 17% of breweries had female CEOs. Out of those, how many were solo female CEOs? Just 3%. I know what some of you may be thinking. Maybe it's that men just like beer more than women. If you went on TV ads alone, you'd almost think that women are allergic to the stuff. But we know that the ladies are drinking plenty. The rise in craft beer seems to be helping. A 2018 Nielsen-Harris poll suggested that Americans drinking craft beer on the regular were 31% female and 68% male, a definite rise on the women's side. The poll suggests that out of some 14.7 million new craft drinkers since 2015, 6.6 million, a bit less than half of those, are women. Another recent poll suggests that women aged 18 to 34 are reaching for craft beer over white wine as their beverage of choice. But a video experiment shot by Anheuser-Busch as part of their We All Love Beer campaign suggests that we still think of beer as a man's drink. In it, hidden cameras showed several couples ordering drinks together. The woman orders a beer, while their male companion orders something considered traditionally girly, a rosé, a cosmopolitan. And almost without fail, the waiter who brings their drinks always puts the beer in front of the guy. Because sparkling wine just can't be for that burly, strapping gentleman, and this beer, oh well, it's just not for you. But why, when women have been brewing and drinking it for most of human history? I have a little theory, and it crystallizes in the Victorian era. Remember those two very different spheres, the private, where women lived, and the public, where men worked? When beer moved out of the kitchen and into bars and taverns, it became firmly rooted in the public sphere, one that women, as a rule, weren't welcome in. Well-to-do ladies in places like Australia, the UK, and America weren't to be seen in pubs. It was seen as low class, associated with rough women and ladies of the evening. Though women sometimes worked in these places as barmaids, they weren't suitable for women to hang out in as customers. As an Australian member of parliament reportedly said about women in bars long, long after the Victorian era had finished.
1: Prestige of womanhood is too high and too valuable and too precious to be destroyed by a vulgarism.
0: And so those who wanted to be seen as good women didn't tend to drink beer. And beers and bars became associated with women who were a little bit too loose and had one too many opinions. I asked Flora why she thought beer was perceived as a man's beverage.
1: I think it's because we have this association in mind, like beer, pizza and football. Or beer would be something you drink with your mate or you drink... I guess it has been more social than something that's associated to gastronomy, Um, whereas wine was always associated with gastronomy, and so people will see wine as something that you need to appreciate, whereas beer, you you don't really need to appreciate the taste. You will drink a beer because it's Saturday and you're with your mate.
0: And in the days of yore, being out at a bar with your mate was a male-dominated pastime. In the 1800s and early 1900s, there were laws in many places that barred women from working or drinking in saloons. In 1884, Australia's Adelaide Advertiser reported on,
1: The fearful injury wrought young men by the seductive influence of young and exquisitely dressed barmaids in the saloons and back bars of several Adelaide hotels.
0: Because, of course, a woman in a bar must be a mercenary prostitute. I'm sure Gilgamesh would be totally on board. This isn't just about a woman's right to party. These are places where deals are struck and ideas are formed, and women aren't allowed to take part. Things start changing in the Roaring Twenties when the ladies start really hitting the town, and during World War II as they enter the workforce in big numbers. But in many places, even after, women still aren't welcome in public bars. In Australia and New Zealand, for example, women had separate ladies' lounges and weren't allowed to come into the main bar at all. And so it was in 1965, in the balmy city of Brisbane, Merle Thornton and Rosalie Bogner chained themselves to the bar at the Regatta Hotel. They'd gone to see the governor the day before about how they thought it was unfair that women couldn't drink in public bars, and they'd been laughed at. So they decided to march on in and make a point. The bartender refused to serve them, but some male patrons brought them drinks in solidarity, while policemen found some tools to cut through their chains. This act of protest against being barred from the bar resulted in death threats and mean comments about how these women were neglecting their children. They paved the way for women to drink in public bars, but it wasn't made legal in Queensland until 1970. But here's a nice note to end on. The Regatta's bar is now named Merle's. If I'd known any of this when I was in grad school, and I'd spent several drunken nights at the regatta, I would have poured one out for the both of them. It's true that some women just don't like beer. You do you. But such attitudes about women and drinking, particularly their drinking beer, has played a part. Take a look at beer advertising. Historically, it either objectifies women or just leaves them out entirely. Go ahead and Google any major beer ad campaign and try to find one that's woman-focused. Don't get me wrong, you'll find plenty of women serving beer to male customers, most likely flashing a whole lot of cleavage. Of course, there are some ads that target women, particularly in the 1950s and 60s, when shopping was very much in the woman consumer's domain. But even these make a point by pointing out how unique it is for a woman to voluntarily reach for a lager. I'll take Bavarian beer. Bavarian's
1: old style beer. beer. I'll take Bavarian. But it's a man's beer. Yes, dear. But I like it too. You do. We, we like, like Bavarian. Bavarian. I'm the one who carries them home. It's Bavarian B- beer for you. Say Jane, have you discovered that better beer? I've found out that Bavarian's old style, a man's beer, is my beer too. It's true. Women have discovered the superb satisfaction in every mild mellow drop of Bavarian's old style.
0: You heard right, gents. Our beer is so good that even the ladies like it. And then there are ads like Bud Lights up for whatever campaign when they plaster their cans with the off-color tagline. The perfect beer for removing no from your vocabulary for the night. Yikes. A 2018 study done in the UK called the Gender Pint Gap says that male-oriented adverts keep some 27% of women from drinking beer. For younger female drinkers between 18 and 24, that number rises to 48%. There's also beer's high calorie count, a.k.a. fear of the beer belly. And yes, beer does tend to have a decent number of calories, but it is better for you in terms of vitamins, minerals, and good bacteria than wine. At least that's what I tell myself when I drink that 7% IPA. And then there's the 17% of women who said they feared being judged for drinking beer. Judged for drinking something that, somewhere along the line, they learned was not for them. But look behind brewpub counters, into homebrew sheds, and between the giant tanks at breweries, and you'll find more and more women coming back to the fold. I asked Flora how she came to love beer and got into brewing.
1: I think I got in beer first, uh, just because I ended up trying a few that I liked and and coming back to it and, and being keen to try more variety and learn about it. And brewing came a few years later um, because I studied biotech engineering. I was working on making alcohol as fuel. And the process is obviously very similar to making alcohol for human consumption. So I guess it became quite obvious that I could, I could use my technical skills to do something a bit more fun. Uh, and I had a few go at it. Uh, some years ago without, without being too serious. And I guess a couple of years ago, I I got serious, seriously into home brewing and, and then why not brewing as a carrier?
0: Flora feels like, of all the male-dominated professions she's worked in, brewing has been the easiest to break into.
1: In the beer industry, there's a lot of young people and they probably have a bit less um, preconception about female working in their field. Um, I think for a male-dominated industry, beer is an easy one uh, to get in. Could be could be much harder.
0: But that doesn't stop people from being surprised when she says she's a professional brewer.
1: Most of the time, I just get the, oh, that's really cool. And then they will ask me, what's my favorite beer? But yeah, there would be a few people that don't really get it and keep asking, if I work in marketing for the brewery or until <laughs> I have to physically describe I'll take the malt and turn it into beer. Uh, but yeah, I think most people like getting used to the idea that they are female brewing out there.
0: And there are barriers to women becoming brewers, much like women who want to join the armed forces. Something as seemingly simple as weightlifting can play a big part in keeping the ladies out of a competitive field.
1: I mean, there will still be people advertising for role, and and it says you need to be able to do heavy lifting, which, which doesn't make you feel very welcome. It's like bag of malt is like half of my waist, so I can carry the old one from time to time, but I cannot like <laughs> do, do it that often.
0: Imagine if the only thing between you and your dream job as a professional brewer was your ability to lift a 25 kilo bag. Luckily, there are organizations like Pink Boots, which supports female brewers in the field. They're currently working on getting multipliers to move from 25 kilo bags to 12 kilo ones. A change that Flora says would impact many female brewers' lives.
1: Pink Boots is really great. Um, having worked in the main male dominated field for my whole career, I feel it's the first time being a female comes with an advantage. It, it, makes us, uh, it makes us much stronger because we have support. Um, it also makes us more visible, and then it means it's more normal to be a female in that industry.
0: There's something really nice to me about the idea of women coming home to brewing, finding it again, both the craft of brewing it and the enjoyment to be had in drinking it. This is our legacy, a craft that women help perfect, and that many fought long and hard to enjoy. So let's raise a glass to female brewers of the ancient past, the present, and future. And that wraps up our chapter on Ancient Egypt. I'll be back in a handful of weeks with a whole new empire to explore, and a whole host of fascinating women to discover. Until next time... Thanks for listening. If you're a fan, consider becoming a patron. You'll help keep the show going and get access to exclusive bonus content, sneak peeks, and more. Just go to my website and click on Become a Patron. While you're there, check out the transcript for this episode, which includes the lady-centric timeline and special map I mentioned, plus a list of my research sources, music credits, and a ton of amazing images. Just go to www.theexplorespodcast.com. Speaking of images, come find me on Instagram at The Explores Podcast, or come play with me on Facebook or Twitter at The Explores Pod. With any questions or suggestions, just shoot me an email. I love hearing from you. Thanks to John Armstrong and Simon Donatris for their vocal stylings, and an extra warm thanks to Mr. Explores, a.k.a. Paul Gablonski, for helping me get excited about beer. Thanks to Anna and Simon Colette for letting me do a slightly in an inebriated interview. And thanks so much to Flora Gazzoni and Colonial Brewing Company in Melbourne, Australia, for giving us a tour and some insight into the brewing industry. Good morrow, squire!